Welcome to Letter Lopate at Large. Welcome to our show. Sean King was the communications director for an environmental NGO when he received a Facebook message that would change everything. It was a description of the video that revealed the chokehold killing of Eric Garner by NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo for the alleged crime of selling loose cigarettes. After seeing that footage, Mr. King vowed to devote his life to shining a light on the violence perpetrated by some police officers against unarmed minorities. His latest book, Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression, and Our Own Future, is not just a description of the work he's done with the Black Lives Matter movement, the Bernie Sanders campaign, as a social justice writer for the Daily News and The Intercept, and as the host of uh, the podcast, The Breakdown with Sean King, but it's also a manual for how aspiring activists can join the fight and be effective at making significant change. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and I'm very pleased that it brings Sean King to our show now. Welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Hope you can hear me fine, man. I, I hear you great. You, you yeah. describe feeling as though Eric Garner was a personal friend or a family member. Why do you think you took his death so personally? In some ways, you kind of have to go back in time because in 2014, that summer, we had never seen a video of someone being killed by police before. And I've seen myself hundreds of these videos, including several just this week. But mm. by 2014, I'd never seen anything like that. And when I. Cell phones have video, changed the world. Yeah. I mean, when I got sent that video, it was from a friend of mine. It, it had not gone viral yet. It was not yet even in the news. I didn't even know this man's name. And when I started watching the video, here was a man who was fully alive. And by the end of this video, which was about 15 minutes long, it wasn't just this kind of short clip that we've all seen. It was not only the first time I saw someone killed by police. I think it was the first time I had ever seen a man die on video, period. And not not thinking about movies or films. This was a real man who was living and breathing, who was nonviolent, who was unarmed. And to see him go from that to a man who was dead, it just shook me. And these past six years for our country, I think, have changed the norms of what we're used to. But in July of 2014, it just shocked my conscience. And having never seen something like that before, it just made me feel like I had witnessed a crime. Like I, like I saw something that I needed to respond to. And now, while it's good that we're able to film acts of injustice, now I'm afraid that we see them so frequently that we see it and just keep on moving. How did your activism change after Eric Garner's death? Well, and I mean, what have been some of your early efforts at social justice activism up to that point? Well, it, it changed in a lot of ways. I mean, um, when Eric Garner died and, and was killed there, my thought was if I could only make people aware of this injustice, if I could, if I could let the world know that this horrible thing happened, I was so naive at the time that I thought if I could build that awareness, it would lead to justice. And by the end of that week, the whole world had seen the video that I saw 
the whole world knew his name. Literally, it was covered on the front page of over 100 newspapers around the world. And what I realized was building awareness about injustice does not necessarily produce justice, does not produce change. And up until that point, my thought was always, let's tell the world and something good will happen. And what many of us found was that while awareness can kind of set the tone for justice or change, it's not necessarily the direct cause of it. And that this country is fully willing to be aware of its worst problems and do next to nothing about them. And it took me a few years after Eric Garner was killed to realize that while it's important for the country to be aware of our problems, that awareness and change are not one and the same. Well, and then along came the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, a lot of people felt a, a sense of commitment uh, similar to what you did, although uh, they haven't been as active as you are. But let's back up a bit. You became sure. a licensed Baptist preacher when you were just <laughs> 17 years old. How did you? That's how do you think that experience affected your activism today? Well, you know, even even as I hear you say it, in most churches, you typically have to go to, to seminary. You generally have to be like a full-fledged adult <laughs> to be a licensed preacher. But I grew up in a small rural town in Kentucky. and Versailles. It, yeah, yeah. Well, it looks well, it's like it's called Versailles. Versailles. So yeah, Versailles. I know Versailles. That's right. We're so country. <laughs> it's an we American. Call it Versailles. <laughs> and uh, in this little town, and in a lot of small black churches around the country, just just being a preacher would just being able being able to preach was enough to be licensed to preach. And so, as a seventeen year old growing up in rural Kentucky. Um, I, I started preaching and that was a huge part of my early life and, and even for most of my twenties and, um, most people Please. today don't know me as a, a, a pastor or a preacher, but, uh, I did go on to seminary and I was a pastor for many years. You describe having a terrible time at your sales, Kentucky high school, but, uh, please tell me if this is a subject you'd prefer not to discuss but weren't you jumped and brutally beaten by white classmates? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an open book, man. So I'm always open to discussing it. And was that, that a was, hate crime? Well, it was, but it was a hate crime in a time where that language was just starting to be used. And that was all the way back in 1995. I was... Uh, a sophomore in high school there in, in Versailles, Kentucky at Woodford County High School. And I had had problems with a super racist group of students at the high school. Me and most of my friends had had problems with them for the first two years we were there in the high school. And it really culminated for me with that assault in March of 1995. I was beaten so badly that I missed the next two years of high school. Mm -hmm. I had three spinal surgeries, fractures in my face and ribs. Um, it was a, a, a brutally difficult time. And at the, at the time that happened, I didn't really know how it would shape my future. Um, it was, the surgeries were hard. The recovery was hard. I, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I went through 
uh, uh, therapy in addition to the physical therapy. I went through uh, a litany of uh, mental health services as well. And coming out of that, I had no idea that it would impact the direction of my life the way it did, but it kind of seared into my heart just a, a passion for justice. It caused me to care deeply about people who experienced injustice, um, people who even it caused me to care deeply about people who are in pain, physical pain, emotional pain. And because of that, even though I, I regret I experienced any of it, because of it, though, it really shaped my life as an activist and organizer. And once I was able to, to physically and emotionally recover from that, my school only my high school only had uh, my town only had one high school. And so I had to go back to the same high school where I was assaulted. The assault took place in school during a regular school day. And uh, I returned back to that high school and graduated my senior year and moved to Atlanta to go to Morehouse College and really jumped in head first as an, an organizer and activist on my campus. But before he was fired by Breitbart News, Milo Yiannopoulos used a police report from the incident in your high school in an attempt to prove that you aren't biracial. Why do you yeah. think it was so important to him uh, to try to somehow prove that you're actually white? Well, I think it, if that was true, I think it would be a crazy story. Um, but at the time when um, when Milo and Breitbart, and in fact, Steve Bannon was still at Breitbart when they started running these stories that I was a white man pretending to be black and their smoking gun evidence was this police report from 1995 that the officer completed. And that officer actually told Breitbart and, and went on record with me and others to say he told them that he knew I was not white. He knew that I was biracial, but that on the police report, they did not have a box. This again, you have to go back in time. This is 1995. And not only that, he told me I, I spoke to him for the first time in 20 years after Milo released this report. And the police officer told me, he said, Sean, of course, when I filled out that report, I never imagined 20 years later, people combing over every detail. But like my my parents and my upbringing and like my racial background, it was widely known in this town. It, it's a it's a town with 10,000 people. And so you you couldn't keep that a secret if you wanted to. And people, people knew that part of my story. And so, um, th the insinuation from, from Breitbart at the time was that I checked the box that said white, which of course I, I never have and, and never did back then. Um, but it was just, it was meant to be kind of like a gotcha story. Like, Hey, we trapped this man in a, in a, in a lie or a hoax when the police <laughs> officer himself had openly said he knew that wasn't the case, but they never printed that part of it. Later on in your studies, you describe how the ideas of the German historian Leopold von Ranke uh, completely changed your concept of activism. Uh, I don't think that von Ranke's name uh, is brought up a lot in activist circles. What was it about him that uh, affected you and, and, uh, and, I was, yeah, let me tell you, Go ahead. I, I was in grad school and uh, we had just spent the previous six months. This was 
now January of 2015, and I was in grad school, and me and millions of others had demonstrated and protested and marched and and fought for justice for Eric Garner, for Mike Brown, for Tamir Rice, and for many others, uh, a young man named John Crawford who was shot and killed by police in Ohio. And that winter, we really realized that there was going to be no justice and no accountability, not just for those four families, but 1,100 people were killed by police in 2014, and not a single one of those families, none of them, got any semblance of justice. And in the shadows of that kind of heartbreak and disappointment, I enrolled in uh, this grad school course. I was finishing my master's of history, and in the course, they told this story of, of Leopold von Ranke and his early hope to be able to build this kind of detailed timeline of human history. And what he was hoping to show was really two things. He was hoping to put all of human history in this detailed, annotated timeline. He was hoping that he could learn from the trends of history. And in some ways, he was hoping that putting all of human history in chronological order with with great detail that it would help him kind of predict the future and and what he found surprised him what he thought he would find would be something like what charles darwin suggested was that over time human beings were steadily evolving in an upward progressive trajectory that Human beings, in essence, in essence, were getting better and better over time. What von Ranke thought he would find is that the, the historical version of that would also be true. But what he found when he put all of history in chronological order is that human beings aren't steadily getting better. He found that sometimes human beings do indeed improve, and then they crash and burn, and they'll scratch and claw out of the hole that they put themselves in only to crash and burn again, and that instead of it being humanity over time just steadily getting better, what he described was that humanity is more like peaks and valleys. Uh, I mean, I would describe it almost like a roller coaster of of high heels and and deep drops in in repetition. And von Ranke didn't use these words, but in essence what he found was that history repeats itself, including the worst aspects of history. And it helped me to understand where we found ourselves in 2015 and even where we find ourselves today here in 2020 is that we're not at the peak of human history, but that we're somewhere in one of those steep declines that Von Ranke found. And what we find is that over time, human beings are willing to plunge ourselves into deep despair, and sometimes willingly, and sometimes we we go to these horrible depths unwillingly. But we we always fight our way back out of the holes that we find ourselves in, and and kind of learning what von Ranke understood, it helped me. It helped me understand why we're in this low moment. And 
that was in 2015, and I think Twice over today. the past yeah over the past five years, in some ways things have gotten markedly worse, and and the coronavirus is is just a part of that, and and certainly not just the virus itself, but our nation's horrible response to it is is a part of that decline. Sean King, whose latest book is Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic uh, Oppression, and and, uh, Own Our Future, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, is my guest today on London Pit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. A large part of your book is much like an instruction manual on how aspiring activists can get involved and be effective at organizing. What are the questions you get asked most often about the work that you do? That's yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked. You know, I before before the pandemic, I traveled all over the country teaching and organizing. Uh, I live in Brooklyn, and, and including you know all over all of our boroughs here. I traveled to 47 states, um, not just to major cities, but deep into Alaska, North and South Dakota, Wyoming, all over the deep South in Mississippi and Alabama and, and, and everywhere in between. And what I realized from all of those travels over the past five years was that I got, no matter where I was, some version of one consistent question. And people would ask me, with with only slight variations, they would ask me, Sean, how do I use my life to actually make a difference in the world? How do I use my life to make an impact on the problems that bother me? And what I, what I was encouraged and, and discouraged about was this. I was encouraged when I started hearing people ask me that question, really even early in 2014, they would tell me like, Sean, I'm bothered by injustice. I'm bothered by police brutality, but what do I do about it? What disturbed me though was six years later, I'm still being asked the same question Mm -hmm. that there's still not a widespread understanding of how you can use your life to not only make a difference on police violence or, or racial injustice, but on most of the most difficult problems. And, and in effect, most of those problems that existed in 2014, they're still here, just as bad as they were six years ago, with seemingly no end in sight. And part of why I wrote the book was to be able to give people a thorough answer to that question on here is how you can use your life to actually make measurable systemic change in the world. And you advise aspiring activists to make an issue their specialty. Uh, your organization, Real Justice PAC, focuses on local district attorney races. Uh, why have you made that uh, your, one of your major issues? Why do you believe those races in particular are the best places to concentrate your efforts. Well, I learned I learned the hard way in a lot of ways uh, here in New York and all over the country as we started demanding justice in cases of police violence even in the most egregious cases. I would say um the the shooting death of Philando Castile in Minnesota comes to mind 
a man who broke no law, committed no crime, was shot and killed in front of his fiance and and their daughter on the 4th of July after a case of racial profiling. It was filmed. It was on it was literally on Facebook Live as it unfolded. And I said to several of my friends, like, this is this is the case where we will get justice. And I knew it like in my heart and soul. I told my wife, I told my kids. I said this even to Philando's mother, Valerie, who I got to know, like Valerie, just hang in there. We're going to get justice for your family in this case. And I and I believed it. And I knew in my heart that we would. And again, just like hundreds of cases before that, there was no justice, not no accountability, no no reconciliation in any kind of way. And a team and I ultimately in response, not just to the murder of Philando Castile, but in the in response to the hundreds and hundreds of people who had been killed by police almost four a day, every single day in this country, um, we decided that we would target the primary people who were responsible for never bringing people to justice. And those are your local district attorneys. Nobody who in this work country. with the police. They yeah, work with well, the police, so no. they feel that they uh, they they can't uh, start a war with the police in many cases. But you're well, backing Tahani Abushi from Manhattan DA. Did, do you think things would change there? Well, New York, sadly, I love New York, and my my family loves calling New York home. New York has one of the worst histories of police violence of any major city in the world, and I could rattle off a long list of names of victims who not only deserve justice, but whose families thought 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, last month, they thought that police violence would eventually end in this city, that the city would overcome it. And one of the reasons it hasn't is because it has not had local prosecutors or even local mayors, for that matter, who were really willing to intervene and stop a myriad of practices of police violence, not just people being shot and killed or people being choked to death. But police violence and police corruption has plagued this city for a very long time. And one of the few people who can stop it is the local district attorney of each borough. And Tahani Abushi is someone that I know personally. She is as tough, uh, courageous. Uh, she has more integrity in her pinky than most people have in their whole body. She is fearless. And it's going to take someone like Tahani, who is unmovable, who will be able to come into that office, which needs just deep philosophical change from top to bottom. It will take somebody with her courage and character to be able to come in there and, and make deep systemic change. There are a number of great people running for district attorney, and I'm, I'm excited about that. But uh, Tahani is is as unique as anybody who's ever run for the office. Her own father uh, was convicted and spent over 20 years in prison. She understands the impact of mass incarceration. And uh, she lived in New York as well in the shadows of 9-11 after there was so much anti-Muslim sentiment in this city, even on behalf of the NYPD. And so she understands, and, and um, my hope is not only that she'll be elected, but that we believe when she is, 
she'll make sweeping changes in the way that our current district attorney and most of New York City's leadership just have refused to do. Well, how political is it? Patrick Lynch, the president of the Police Benevolent Society of the City of New York, has endured has endorsed President Trump's reelection campaign. Well, what we know is that New York's police unions have always been somewhat silently political in their kind of conservative ideology. But to see them now not only endorsing Donald Trump, but actively campaigning for him, we find that disgusting. And I would almost rather the police unions endorse nobody in these races. And I've had countless police officers in the NYPD tell me that they are considering even dropping out of the union and and not even having that union representation because they feel like Pat Lynch in the union not only no longer represents them, but actually represents their oppression. And that he doesn't understand that is it's not just obtuse, it's it's disturbing. And in a city where nearly 85% of the people have supported Donald Trump's opponents, that our police union is supporting Donald Trump just shows how blatantly out of step they are with the people of this city as well. Senator Bernie Sanders wrote the foreword to your book. You call him your hero in the acknowledgments. Yeah. Um, when did you first meet him? I first met Bernie when he was running for president in uh, 2016, and I learned right away that he was really one of the only people in Congress, alongside John Lewis and a few others, who were actual organizers in the civil rights movement. And it just made me—and Bernie was— so humble about that period of his life that he rarely talked about it in part. And he, and he told me, I, I talked about this when I introduced him at his kickoff rally for his next presidential campaign. Bernie revered John Lewis and others so much that he never wanted to position himself as a civil rights leader like John Lewis and others had. He just was content that he did the work so much so that come 2016 or even in 2020, most people didn't even really understand that Bernie had been arrested in the civil rights movement, protesting, demonstrating that he was literally the the head of the Congress of Racial Equality at the University of Chicago. A lot but he of didn't seem to be were, getting much support from the African-American community. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, black voters around the country are deeply committed to the Democratic Party and have I, I I don't I don't mean that as an insult in any way. Black voters have put in a lot of work at building their standing in the Democratic Party. And for most of his life, Bernie has not been a Democrat. And in part because of that, um, a lot of black voters didn't really know who Bernie was. Uh, not only that, Bernie lived in Vermont, which is far away from uh, the American South where Bernie often struggled. And in part because Bernie had never been positioned as, I think, a civil rights hero the way he, he deserved. 
there was just a lack of understanding of who who is this man and what does he stand for. In spite of all of that, black voters under 40 uh, continued to choose him as their number one candidate in 2016 and 2020. Um, It was was always a challenge for Bernie to, uh, to do well, particularly in the American South where the Democratic Party, where Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton both just had a really long history. Now, you described your involvement in crafting his social justice platform in the book. What was your role in that process? Well, um, one of the things I love about Bernie is that he always invites not only uh, subject experts, but activists, organizers, impacted families, people who have experienced problems to the table to help shape his policies. So if you look at the policy team that he put together for healthcare, he not only put together experts who really understood that that subject, but he put together families who had been impacted by lack of healthcare at that same table. And when it came time to really write and shape his policies on criminal justice, he invited scholars, activists, organizers, and families who had experienced mass incarceration and police brutality. He invited all of them to the table to really write and shape those policies. And um, we created in 2020 alongside Bernie what I think was the most robust policy ever created on issues of criminal justice. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. We'll return to my interview with activist Sean King right after this. And when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Before I get back to my conversation with Sean King, I'd like to take a moment to ask all of our listeners who aren't already to consider becoming members of WBAI. We're asking you to step up right now by going to our website, give2wbai.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number, 516-620-3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a, a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression, and Own Our Future by my guest, Sean King. But no matter what level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. If Leonard Lopate at Large has played a role in your daily life, consider stepping up for someone who's just discovering it. 
why not also give them the gift of the hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we strive to bring you in each installment of this program. You can do that again by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give2wbai.org. And many Leonard Lopate at Large fans are doing just that. Listeners like John Stiller of Queens Village and, and David Laviton of Hackensack, New Jersey. John and David, thank you so much. And, and thanks to everyone who stepped up to keep the show going. We can't do it without you. And now we are back with my guest, Sean King, uh, talking about his book and uh his act, uh, his activist career. Uh, you, uh, you, you say that you were an early adopter of social media, joined Twitter when it consisted of just a few hundred thousand nerds. But <laughs> you say when you began advocating for Michael Brown, the African American man who was killed by Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri, in 2014, you say that the level of vitriol was beyond anything that you'd seen online. Why do you Man. think that the resistance was so different? And has, I, has that kind of level of, of uh, online vitriol continued for oh, people yeah. like you? Yes. It's only gotten worse. You know, I joined Twitter in early 2008, and it was very literally just kind of like a platform of, of nerds and techies. But for the next six years, I used it every day literally I, I had hundreds of thousands of tweets i weighed in on all types of causes and issues and while i would every now and then get somebody who would reply to me with some type of disagreement i never had anybody not one time say a single hateful thing to me until august of 2014 and and, and when I say hateful, I don't mean people disagreeing on substance or, or doing it with some level of integrity. After six years on the platform and hundreds of thousands of tweets, when I started advocating for justice for Mike Brown, things turned ugly quickly. My family started to receive death threats. Um, we started being called racial slurs every day, every day, all day. And at first... Like now this is commonplace for me, which is horrible. But when it started happening in August of 2014, I was shocked. I was scared. I was I, I was confused, not because I didn't think there was racism in this country, but I had been super, super active on the platform. And there had never been that type of ugliness and vitriol. I literally had people begin posting pictures of my children on Twitter Ooh. as if they were killing my kids. Oh my. And this came within days of beginning to advocate for justice for Michael Brown. And from that day until literally today, it has been ugly on social media for me and for most of us who are fighting uh, for, for justice, for fight or fighting for black lives. We see that type of, harassment and vitriol day in and day out and social media is at the center of it. In fact, we just learned yesterday the men who were plotting to kidnap the governor of Mich Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, they were doing those 
those things on social media. They were literally plotting on Facebook. And that's how they got caught, in fact. And we caught a group of officers this summer. I don't know if you saw this, Leonard, but a, a group of police officers in California mm-hmm. were literally plotting to kill me on Facebook in a private Facebook group earlier this year. And that is now under investigation, not only from the FBI, but multiple law enforcement agencies in California. And we continue to be harassed daily. And I never imagined that one of the people that I think is has been at the center of the rise of hate and ugliness on social media, Donald Trump, would be elected president. And I, in fact, I don't think you have President Donald Trump without Twitter, without social media. His his influence is centered on those platforms. And um, even yesterday, as Gretchen Whitmer learned that these men literally came to her house multiple times, studying studying her yard, studying her traffic patterns, all of that, and were plotting to blow up a bridge that led to her house so that police could not get there. On the same day, Donald Trump began harassing her on Twitter yesterday, on the day that these men who were Trump supporters were arrested for harassing her. And so the harassment on social media is so fierce that many of us would love to leave the platforms altogether, but we use these platforms to try to do good. And so, um, I, you know, I have security outside of my home right now because of the threats we continue to receive. You say that, uh, it's best to, uh, focus on, be selective, uh, about which causes you take on so that you can be more effective. So let's talk about some of the recent incidents of police violence that you've been working to spread awareness about. Well, George Floyd is not the first police murder of an African-American that's been caught on film in recent years. We mentioned Eric Garner at the top of the show, and there have been, sadly, dozens of other incidents. Why do you think that the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis has had such a profound effect on this country? Was it just the nature of the killing? I think it's, there's probably three or four factors there, Leonard. I think you can never divorce a moment in history from the context and time that it happened in. When, when George Floyd was killed, it was during the height of the pandemic, uh, where virtually every American was shut in their home. Um, we were having, at that time, over a thousand people a day dying And it was just a moment where millions of jobs had been lost. Everybody is home. And it it allowed when George Floyd was killed, it allowed a level of uninterrupted focus uh, that existed the cause of the pandemic and not just focus. There was a lot of despair economic despair, people were literally losing their loved ones all over the country. And all of that despair, frustration, all of that has to be considered. But it was also just the grotesque nature of what happened to George Floyd, where for nearly nine minutes, you hear and see a man begging for his life 
and you see officers who at any moment could have let up, taken him to the hospital, just let up and he was handcuffed. They could have let up and put him in the back of their car. Instead of moving an inch, they continue to put hundreds of pounds of pressure all over his body until he dies right there. And, and the killing even, of Breonna Taylor has also played a prominent role in the process that we've seen in the past six months. And yet, despite months of intense, highly publicized activism, the police who killed her were acquitted. Do you think that if Breonna Taylor were white, she'd still be alive or that the officers who shot into her home uh, kind of indiscriminately would have been acquitted? Well, two things, you know, Leonard, the, the men who did it, they weren't acquitted they were never even charged mm. and and but interestingly no, by a black attorney general yeah who really so who really dropped a there, case there are two there are two or three things that play there no if brianna taylor was white the no-knock raid never would have happened study after study has shown that no-knock raids are rarely used against white people in louisville in louisville no-knock raids are primarily used against african-americans now, the city has now banned no-knock raids because of what it cost Breonna Taylor and her family. But police officers don't like to use these raids on the communities they come from. They like to use them in zip codes, in neighborhoods that they know they'll never be in. They're cruel. They are dangerous. They're dangerous for police officers. In fact, I've seen multiple police officers be killed in these no-knock raids. And I've seen children. Uh, including an eight-year-old girl named Ayanna Jones who was killed in a no-knock raid. I've seen grandparents be killed in them. Most of the world doesn't even know what a no-knock raid is. Most of the world doesn't practice them. They, they are dangerous for everybody involved, and they are rarely used in wealthy zip codes. They're rarely used in predominantly white zip codes. And it's not because in those wealthy or predominantly white zip codes they don't use drugs. They don't sell drugs. They do both. In fact, studies show that white people and black people both use and sell drugs at almost an identical rate. But these practices like no-knock raids where you break into someone's home in the middle of the night, those are primarily reserved for African-Americans. And, and just to, to clear the air, Breonna Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenny, Kenny Walker, who I know well, my family and I grew up with Kenny's family in Versailles. I'm from Kentucky. Uh, neither one of them had ever been arrested or charged with a crime a day in their life. Breonna Taylor had never sold drugs. She was an essential worker mm -hmm. and an and EMT. And part of that is why her case caught on as well. Again, in the middle of the pandemic, that, a, that an EMT, the day after working a double shift, is shot and killed in her home. In her uh, bed. Is, yeah, is appalling. So... <laughs> This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm speaking with Sean King. Um, in the early part of the summer, Black Lives Matter was receiving record public support and polls taken across the country. But in the past three months, that support has died down a bit. Do you have any uh, theories as to why and, and does it yeah. worry you? Well, many of us knew that the temporary spike that came after the murder of George Floyd, we, we always felt that that would be fleeting. Uh, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, it got up to over 65% of Americans said, yes, 
I not only support the Black Lives Matter movement, but I believe that America has deep systemic racism. Every week that followed that week, the numbers dropped. And in fact, the day after George Floyd was murdered, even Sean Hannity was saying how awful the murder was. <laughs> and and we knew that sometimes things happen in this country, like the murder of Emmett Till, for instance, that shocks the conscience of this country. But then it slowly creeps back to its kind of default status. And while the numbers of people who support the Black Lives Matter movement, those numbers are still higher than they were last year or five years ago, we knew that particularly in, a, in an election year where people are super tribal, that it was only a matter of time until that support kind of waned. It's sad that it takes someone like George Floyd, who was effectively lynched in broad daylight on the middle of a street in Minneapolis, that it takes that type of moment for people to say, yeah, 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 I support this. And as that moment disappears from their mind, they just kind of go back to their same philosophies and habits. You were originally scheduled to be a guest on this show over a month ago on September 7th, but you became infected with the coronavirus. Uh, are right. you okay now? Yeah, my, my entire family. Um, we worked so hard, Leonard, for six months here in New York to, we rarely left the house and we worked so hard. I have my wife and one of our daughters both have a history of chronic respiratory problems and we were terrified of getting it more for them than anybody else. And uh, it really shocked us and disappointed us in some ways that we eventually contracted it. We never really knew where we still to this day, never figured out where we got it from. And, um, to, to have gotten it and, and been able to endure it is, uh, it's been a hard time. We've all now tested negative after about a month of our first diagnosis. But, um, Thankfully, my wife and I both had some emergency room visits. We had trouble breathing and, and struggles, but we were able to receive treatment and, and have recovered, thankfully. I'm sure you're watching uh, what's happening with the president closely. Uh, president Trump called his experience of becoming infected with COVID-19 really going to school. <laughs> Is there anything you think... You may have failed to grasp about the experience. Well, I mean, I guess part of what is perpetually frustrating about him is he has every resource at his disposal, every expert, every tool, and that basically eight months into the pandemic, it took him getting it to say that he kind of started learning some of the basics about it. And now I'm even questioning that because he's already rushing back into meetings. He's, he's, he has to still be contagious. I don't, even with the treatment that he's had, there's no way that he isn't. And yet, um, he continues to abandon protocol and the kind of the standards and guidelines set by his own CDC. And so he might've learned something temporarily, but he's kind of back to his horrible ways. A few months ago, you took your Instagram page private and you announced that you wouldn't be accepting any new followers. What was behind that decision? Well, that, the harassment. Um, 
it can be so fierce. Well, I want to give you a chance to respond. We only have a little while, but to respond to some of the criticism that has been leveled against you. Oh, sure, man. I mean, um, some of the harassment that we get daily can look like intentional misinformation. And daily, every day, day in and day out, I continue to see people spread misinformation about me. One of the biggest lies that we see every day, all day, is that money that we raise for families or causes that I have ever kept that money for myself. It's preposterous. Never, Leonard, for all the millions of dollars that I've raised for families, for victims, for charities, for causes, I've never received a penny from it, ever. And no family has ever said that, ever. But yet, yet, Kali Holloway published an article for the Daily Beast headed, Sean King keeps raising money and questions about where it goes. Of course. And that, that was in, in New York fundraising for uh, your attempt to reboot Frederick Douglass's abolitionist newspaper, The North Star. Yeah, the, but there is no question about where any of the money that we raise ever goes. Like we have the most transparent accountability of, of anybody I know. I literally in uh, 2018 released every tax return. I even gave the passwords to my bank accounts and credit accounts to a team of people who could look at every dollar I'd ever raised, and they issued a report from that. And of course, that report never goes viral, but the lies always go viral. And no matter what people continue to say about the things we do, what we understand is that misinformation spreads faster than the truth. And it's it's frightening that it does. And we're proud of what we've done at the North Star. We're proud of the advocacy that we do on behalf of families. And what we find is that that level of misinformation, particularly about me, it's it's always popular and it just spreads like wildfire. Okay, in about the last minute or so that we have, you're an activist, a journalist, an organizer. How do you want people to see you? You know, I don't think a whole lot of- I should have mentioned the podcast as, as well. Yeah, yeah, I have a daily news podcast, The Breakdown, which is a part of our company, The North Star. I think more than anything else, I mean, I want people to see me as someone who has always tried to fight for change the best way that I know how, using whatever tools that were available. And um, I'm going to continue to do that, to fight for deep systemic change, to fight for justice, to fight for accountability. And uh, I hope that my best work is ahead of me. And Sean King's book is called Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression, and Own Our Future. It's published by, um, what, um, (laughs) I suddenly forgot the name of your publisher. famous famous Mifflin Harcourt. That's right. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. It's been my pleasure, Leonard. Thank you, man. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, who prepared today's interview, and to our engineer, Reggie Johnson, for his work throughout the week, and to today's live engineer, Giovanni Anglin. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org 
We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get our your podcasts. Or you can visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to send me your comments about a program or just to say hello, you can email me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., I I hope that you'll go right now online to give to WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this 100% listener-sponsored community radio station alive. We depend on you. You are it. Um, We don't take commercials. We don't take grants. Um, And as I've been saying, this pandemic has made our financial situation quite difficult. So we need everyone who tunes in to let it locate at large and is financially able to to step up right now uh, by going to our website, uh, give2wbai.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep the show and the station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20, whatever they can afford or more each month to keep the station going and to show their support for what we do on this show. And you can cancel at any time in case you run into some financial difficulties as some of our listeners have. And as I mentioned, at the half. If you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now, we will send you a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression, and Own Our Future by my guest, Sean King. But whatever level you feel comfortable with, donating uh, to the station. The important thing is that you step up right now to show your support so we can continue to bring these long-form interviews to you on on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. And please make sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. A big thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the show and the station. But if you haven't already, why not make that call? Again, the number 516-620- 3602 or go to give2wbai.org and sign up to become a BAI buddy today. We are off on Monday, but because there's going to be Indigenous Peoples Day programming, but we hope you'll tune in on Tuesday when I'll be speaking with Luis A. Miranda Jr., father of Lynn Manuel Miranda, and director John James about a new documentary called Siempre Luis, a portrait of pioneering activist Luis A. Miranda Jr. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you then.